strengthen and you would impart hope in the name of Jesus. Amen. Advent, once again, means coming or expectation. And um, we have this Advent season been reflecting in our sermons and our devotional readings through the week on the second coming of Jesus, on the unfulfilled or the not yet fulfilled promises or prophetic hopes of the Old Testament that are reflected and repeated in the New Testament. And we have we looked in week one at the hope of Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead and how that was such a glorious hope because he would rid the earth of evil. We looked in week two of the hope of the judgment of the kingdom of darkness, Satan and his angelic horde that undergird and that um, work to thwart the purposes of God that are behind every human being, human institution, anything that works evil is undergirded by this kingdom of darkness. Last week, we looked at the hope of Jesus Christ exalted, receiving his rightful place where every human heart adores him, worships him, sees and knows his value and his worth, and he receives all that is due him. And we said that this was such a glorious hope because this is the way it's meant to be, that when we worship, as we experienced just this morning, when we're adoring him, his presence is with us, and he's receiving all that's due him, and we get filled as we worship him. And the time and the day when we don't have to contend against anything that rises up against him because he'll be all in all. So this is week four. Next week is week five, the Sunday that we'll celebrate Christmas Sunday. And this week and next week, Pastor Gina and I are going to preach sort of a part A and part B sermon, kind of like one um, sermon preached in two parts. And we're going to be looking at uh, a bunch of texts from Isaiah and then Revelation 21 and 22. 21 and 22. So I'm going to read some of those texts in just a minute. But before I read those texts, I'd like to say something about symbolism. And in particular, symbolism of cities in the Bible. Because we're about to read quite a number of references to Zion or Mount Zion. Or sometimes short for that, just the mount or mountain or the holy city, or the new Jerusalem. And we would be mistaken if we understood the Bible to be referring to a literal city only. Mount Zion is the hill, you, you might know this, it's the hill that Jer- the city Jerusalem was built on. And so it's a place that became the seat or the center of the Israel's power in the Old Testament. It was the capital of the nation. And so Zion actually became a shorthand way of talking about the whole land, the whole place that Israel was to have. Sometimes it wasn't just a shorthand way of talking about a place, but it actually became a shorthand way of talking about people. Zion could represent the people of God in the Old Testament. 
Mount Zion or Jerusalem was also the place in which the temple was built. And so it was the center of God's presence on earth. You remember that after we fell into sin and Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence and there arose a division between heaven and earth that God in his love and his grace and his effort to redeem said, I'm going to choose this people and I'm going to dwell with them and I'm going to be their God and I'm going to work through them to redeem the earth. And with that people, he said, I'm going to put my presence among you. And he dwelt in one spot on earth as he was in heaven. And that one spot was the Holy of Holies at the center of the temple. So that temple that's on Mount Zion also became a symbol for the presence of God. So throughout the Old Testament, the words Zion or Mount Zion are used over 150 times. And they came... You see this actually developed through the Old Testament. They came to be used figuratively to represent at least these three things. And this is going to be important for us as we read these texts in Isaiah and Revelation. God's presence, God's people, and the place of God's glory. Because these meanings were then extended into the New Testament as the apostles understood themselves to be the recipient of God's old covenant promises fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. So as we read these scriptures, we should understand all the references to cities, whether to city or Zion or mountain or New Jerusalem, as figures of speech used to talk about the place of God's presence with God's people in God's glory. I'll say that again and again, so we'll pick it up. God's presence with God's people in God's glory. Okay? So here are the, here are the promises from the Old Testament. I'm gonna read one short one from Ezekiel 48, 35b. It's the last words in the whole book of Ezekiel. And the prophet says, and the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. So the city will be called the Lord is there. The presence of the Lord. God will actually be there. Now that um, should sound striking to you because it did to them because God wasn't in the city or the place or the mount. God was in the Holy of Holies of the temple. So there's going to be a place, says the prophet Ezekiel, in the future where God is there. Isaiah 4, 5. The Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night over everything. The glory will be a canopy. What's that a reference to? When the people of Israel came out of Egypt and God was in the cloud by day and by night, fire by night, cloud by day, his presence protected them. He was between them and evil. And so the prophet's saying there's going to come a day when the presence of God is over you completely like a canopy. Isaiah eleven six to 10. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. 
the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You can see right there how he's using mountain and then extends it to say the earth as the mountain to represent the place because then he says the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. On this mountain or in this place, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away every tear from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. Isaiah 54, 11 to 14. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli, I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness, you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine upon you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous and they will possess the land forever. So here's a summary of what these Old Testament prophecies said that the Lord would bring about through his Messiah. God would bring about a place in which he dwells with his people. His glory will cover everything like a shelter and the entire place will be filled with the knowledge of his glory and his goodness. It would be filled with his peace, with his righteousness. There'll be no need to fear anything, not death, not violence, not any kind of suffering. There won't even be need of the sun anymore because God would give it everlasting light. The tears and the sorrows of all would be wiped away. That's the Old Testament. No wonder why the early Christians might have been a little bit confused. 
They've been given a foretaste or a down payment of these things that the Old Testament speaks about as they received the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 6.5 describes the ministry or the work of the Holy Spirit as tasting of the goodness of the age to come. But they haven't gotten the full meal. Gotten a taste, but they haven't gotten the full meal. For them, suffering is common. Sorrow abounds. Tears are still plenty. As our fear of violence and death, they're being killed, mocked, beaten. Where is the fullness? And so the Holy Spirit, through John, repeats these precious promises, giving another vision. And now listen for the overtones of Isaiah in Revelation. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. The sea in Bible is a is a metaphor for troublesome things. Things that stir up trouble. Doesn't mean there's going to be no water in the new creation. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. Same word he spoke from the cross. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, Three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. 
the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single single pearl. The, the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. God's word. God's presence with God's people in all of God's glory. This past Thursday evening, I had the delight of folding laundry for about two hours while Anne was at Sarah's ballet rehearsal. And I say delight because I look forward to laundry folding times because I get to watch and listen to things that I like to watch and listen to that strengthen my faith. So on this particular Thursday, I was watching Randy Clark. And um, Randy Clark is a well-known and reputable uh, well, he's, he's a pastor, uh, was a pastor. He's got a, a very large ministry, and one of the things that his ministry does is that they have he- salvation and healing crusades all over the world, in the United States and in many countries of the world. And he trains believers to come with him, and what he does is he preaches the gospel and um, invites people to faith, and then they pray for people, and they pray specifically for physical healing. They pray for anything that people have needs for, but specifically for physical healing. They've been doing this for over a decade, and they've seen the Lord heal people in miraculous ways, and they've started videotaping it, and you can actually watch the Lord healing people right in front of your eyes, and then they record their testimony afterwards. So this is my second time watching through the the set of uh, video testimonies, but what, what really struck me this time was not the miracles. It wasn't any of the miracles that was catching my attention. So it wasn't blind eyes. You see, actually one video, you see a human eye being restored right in front of you. It wasn't the blind eyes. It wasn't the deaf that we're hearing that grabbed me. It wasn't people coming out of wheelchairs or people with rods in their backs that hadn't been able to bend for years, being able to bend. Uh, it was not bent limbs being straightened out or tumors disappearing. It was none of that that was powerful and catching my heart. What was moving me over and over to tears was human suffering. Human suffering. 
It was the tears that people were crying after they were healed as they gave their testimonies. And just listening to them say, I haven't been able to run. I haven't even been able to walk without pain in 11 years. Another, another man saying, my little girl's been tying my shoes for two years. I can't bend over. I've been in chronic pain, unable to lift my arms to even worship the Lord for longer than I can remember. I think the one that stands out to me the most was an African woman from um, living in Canada who, who um, just through bitter tears described watching her daughter get diagnosed as schizophrenic and then watching her daughter just recede into a shell. Just lost her daughter, physically alive, but lost her over months in front of her eyes until all she did was sleep and eat. And the joy of receiving her daughter back after she was healed. Pain and suffering was what was striking me as I watched this just so much. Human pain and human suffering. Nobody needs to tell us of the not yet completeness of God's promises. Suffering is common. Sorrow abounds. Tears are plenty. And it's not just these breaking down bodies that we live in. It's our souls and our spirits too. Too many of us know the ache of loss, whether it's loved ones who live no longer or children who've died before we could meet them. Children that we haven't been able to have. Innocence that was stolen from us. Children who are rejecting our love or the Lord's. Relationships with parents that suffer from misunderstanding and hurt. Bruised hearts. Just difficulty believing and receiving the love of God. Because of how we've not been loved by people. Or the constant pressure to make ends meet. The ache of loneliness the stab of rejection, the agony of divorce, the weight of depression, weariness, weariness of mind and heart. Suffering is common. Sorrow abounds. Tears are plenty. And our God, the God of all compassion, hurts for us, hurts with us, suffers for us, suffers with us, knows our hurts. He sees each tear. He hears. We feel so alone when we mourn, but He hears. The Bible says He hears our mourning even when it's deep below the surface of our hearts. And our God longs to fill us with hope for the future. For the day and the time when this old order of things is passed away and when the prophetic hope of the Old Testament is finally fully realized. And so through this vision to John, he paints a picture of the age to come. And John says, Zion, the holy city, Jerusalem, that place, that place, it's coming. I see it coming. He speaks to brothers and sisters all around him who can't see it. But John says, hold on to hope. I see it coming. Down out of heaven from God. And you'll notice that the dimensions of this city are exactly the same in terms of length and width and height. No earthen city is like that. There's no city in all of the Bible that's described like that. But there's one place in all of Scripture that's described as exact same height and width and length. It's the Holy of Holies. 
the inner sanctuary of the Old Testament temple, the only place that was full of the sweet, loving, comforting presence of God. Exactly the same in length, width, and height. It's as if God, through John, is saying, this new age, this new heavens and earth, this time and place in which God and His people are together will be a place that is gloriously full of the presence of God. I see it coming, says John. After God has judged and destroyed the wicked and rebellious, after He's rid the earth of Satan and His kingdom, after Jesus has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power that does not exalt Him, after He's destroyed even death itself, and handed the kingdom over to God the Father, then will come this long-awaited union of bride and bridegroom. I remember, it's been 13 years, but I remember the day that I longed to see my bride. Jesus longs for that day with us, even as we long for that day with Him. Finally, the bride will see. Paul says, we know in part. We see in part. We see dimly as in a mirror. John says, the day is coming when you will see your God face to face. And you won't just look at Him. He will look at you. He will come to you. Each and every one of us, He'll come. May I? He'll come. <laughs> and, and He'll cup that face. And He'll wipe. He'll wipe away every tear. All the morning. Personally. From each one. It says He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. That's how personal it will be. And the love that we know and we experience in bits and spurts here and now will pick us up and wrap us securely and fill us and we will know nothing but full acceptance, complete healing, perfect love. The absence of all fear or worry, just bursting with joy, overflowing with peace. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you, says God. You're going to see me face to face. And again, I'll wipe every tear from your eyes. It's as though the Lord is saying, it's going to be so unimaginably glorious that the best of your world's descriptors, gold, pearls, precious jewels, can only begin to help you imagine the value and the glory of being with me in all of my glory and my goodness. It's as though he's saying, everything that I've done, first through the 12 tribes and then the 12 apostles, it'll all come together. These gates, these foundations, it's what I'm building on. It'll all come together in this time and this space, this place where we are together. This new heaven and this new earth. And you can hear him calling to each of his children to hang on, to hold out, to believe, to not give up. Why else would he say, it's true, 
It's true. It's coming. You might not see it coming, but it's coming. It's trustworthy and it's true. And he says, only hold on. Keep the faith. You who overcome will inherit all this. Friends, this is paradise. This is paradise. This is a place that we all long for deep in our hearts. It's the end of all of our longings. Even when we so often take those longings and bring them elsewhere. This is it. This is what we were made for. This is what every longing in our heart points toward. And so as we experience the pain and the suffering, the sorrow and the tears of this life that do continue, we look ahead. We look up and ahead and we lift each other's, we put our arms around each other. We lift each other's faces, tear-stained faces up by the chin. And we say to each other, I see it. I see it coming. I see. Maybe you can't see right now, but I can see. Maybe I can't see right now, but you can see. I see it coming. I see a new heavens and a new earth. We say that to each other and we say that to the world around us. There is a king and a kingdom coming. I see it coming. And one day we'll have to say, I see it coming no more because it's here. Until that day, until that day, we keep saying, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes. And together we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, 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 come. Until all of God's people are in God's presence with all of God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's true. Our bodies ache, they break down. Our hearts break. We have unfulfilled hopes and longings. But none of those are the end of the story. You are the God of all hope. And even as Paul says, you're able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. We hear and see again that you are doing, you are planning immeasurably more than we can ask and imagine. And we pray, Lord, again, strengthen that hope in us. And as we Meditate on the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, fill us, fill us, fill us with your joy. Pray that you'd impart hope to every place it's needed this morning. We love you, Lord Jesus. Because you first loved us. Amen.